and thinking about you know the histories of missing peoples, but they are not missing. It's it's just that their stories have been intentionally erased or overwritten for creating a better reflection or a better posture for white superiority. You know, so it's understanding that language and having to understand ourselves that, you know, we are also mimicking and performing these postures in our language and the way we talk or in the way we make choices, how we move in society. Welcome to the Decolonization in Action podcast, a podcast that considers how knowledge, science, and medicine are being decolonized today. My name is Edna Bonal, and I'm broadcasting from Berlin, Germany. Today, I'm joined by Natalie Aguazomo Ba Aforo. Natalie is an artist, curator, and lecturer who merges installation, sonic radio, live art performances, film, and archives. Her work analyzes processes of power and fictions in historical archives, critically engaging in migration struggles. She creates environments for untold narratives of resistance movements by African women and indigenous communities. Her work has been featured in several international exhibitions and biennials, including the Havana Biennial, the Cart Biennial, Biennial Duande. She is the recipient of several awards, including Foundation Rochelle and Afrique Soleil Bali for Best Artist Dakar Biennial, Arts Council England, Goethe Institute, and many more. Welcome to the Decolonization in Action podcast. Thank you for your invitation, Edna. So I, I want to begin a little bit about what often happens here in Europe, where non-white people are asked, where are you from? And it can be seen as an innocent question, but the implication and the tonality of that question can come from and often imply that we're not from here, that there's a way that we need to be localized into another space without actually getting to know who we are as individuals, what motivates us, how we move through the world and how we form our own identities. And the question, where are you from, can also fail to see that our origin stories have more to do with how we fashion ourselves and the agency that we exercise than where our parents were born, our grandparents were born, our great grandparents were born. So rather than starting from origin story about place, I want to know about your origin story as an artist. How did you become and fashion yourself into an artist? Bon, I, I think for me, it was just a way of, of being and of living, you know, because uh, uh, I, I, for me, my practice is a form of therapy very much and of just communication, interacting with people. Uh, which is something that I had to develop, especially when I had uh, leukemia cancer in early childhood. And so it was really like more uh, of a form of survival. Um, but it's, it's not, it was not, the journey was so, not so romantic in the way because it was uh, very difficult for me to have my own expression uh, being understood by other people. I think we are very used to this idea of uh, artists being formed in some kind of 
academy to be legitimized as artists per se in this hierarchical structures. And this was a, a real struggle when, uh, when I was doing my practice in different ways, especially that it was very ephemeral and it was also very performative based, but it was also not theater, right? So theater is also based on these structures that can be quite limited because it's about representation, sometimes reductiveness, and presenting or displaying a final product and a final story, which often doesn't uh, encompass actually how I work or how I live at all. So it was, it's, um, it was more, so I was much more infiltrated into the, the networks of light art. So actually, I mean, uh, it's, uh, I don't identify also my practice within one field either. It's very elastic, it's very porous, but it's just, that it's, it's performative in a sense that you cannot hold it in your hands or you cannot exchange it for the market. So every time it's really much about uh, commitment and dedication to having conversations with people. And sometimes you can do that through dialogue, but also through um, human interaction and, and body language. Uh, so it's something that I grew up with as a form of survival and dealing exactly with you know, this notion of identity as place, uh, as memory, as positionality and in politics. So it's often, you know, I always say when people ask me that question, where are you from? I mean, it's always usually the answer, the response is because that person wants to exercise their position of hierarchy and of superiority over you. Because immediately if you, if you say a place or a country, they will say, oh, I know it very well. I traveled there for my holidays or, you know, I studied this and et cetera. And of course that has nothing to do with, you know, of course they, it's already a form of uh, objection, subjection and oppression to say that, oh, I know you and I know your kind and I know your culture. Therefore you, I will um, teach you. And so that's why it's problematic. It's, it's not, uh, you know, so much in how we answer this, uh, although it, you, you have to perform it also, but it's how you give liability to have a response over you, to write an over story over, you know, how, um, how you live your own uh, life and uh, how you write your own story. So often I... I just say different answers every time just to confuse people because, you know, locality is not really my homeland so much. It's really about the interactions with people and how I hold relationships to people that becomes an anchor point about how I would identify myself. So it's in relationships with people that then, yes, it has to do with race, but then uh, it is much more uh, elastic and it has to do with poetry. And therefore in poetry, you inevitably remain and enter into the politics or politicality. Therefore, you have certain responsibilities in the work that you do as an artist, especially because you have, if I have to simplify, you have two options. Either you are going to perpetrate the same systems of hierarchies and oppression uh, and violence that you have been taught by institutions or that is expected of you in, um, in building your career. Or you use that path, which is not so, which is unmarked, but it gives you much more fortified grounds about who you are and having the integrity and the freedom, just basic freedom and liberation of becoming yourself and to get closer to your own histories and what is your responsibility 
in the society now of what you can do, what you can say that will amplify and give confidence also to collectives and people that you admire. Thank you so much for that thoughtful response and, and also providing a pathway for moving away from locality as a, the sole identity marker, as well as thinking actively about the power that is basically placed in asking that question and people wanting to have dominance over and to point to, I traveled to X location or I've been there, mm -hmm. write a book about, I saw a movie about and thinking that they know when they don't. One thing I want to talk about is your practice, uh, which is very much predicated on unpacking coloniality and decoloniality, especially as a form of healing, which for you is, is quite dynamic and very much oscillating between the past and the present. And what you're pointing to is also with your work, collective approaches to rethinking how knowledge is taught and understood and how to move beyond Eurocentric ideas about um, histories uh, so that we can, can really trouble so many of the things that we've been taught. And I guess I wanna ask a simple question, which is how do you define decoloniality? <laughs> well, I think it's, uh, I always feel a little bit sad when I hear this, this noun, although I mean, I use it of course also because of the system and the institutions that I have to work with and groups that I have to work with. But it, what, it, what, what does this mean? What has it become? And um, I, I think for me, I, I have much more difficulty now to give you a straight response because I think that's the thing with uh, you know, materializing a definition or a noun, it becomes concretized and it becomes only this. And, I think with language, I prefer to, you know, really challenge and be elastic with it and find the porosity. And I think the coloniality is something that is ever changing according to the experiences that we live. And they are built on certain contexts and based on localities or communities, collectives, what type of struggles that we are living. So actually the coloniality is very much defined by the struggles we are living in collectively as groups or as a nation, as individuals, I don't want to put a utopian definition uh, that gives a manual guide or answer for everybody to, to use or to quote. How I can respond to that is maybe um, my experience with the practice of decoloniality for me has changed a lot because it has very much to do with exploring, first of all, who you are and who you want to become. And in that sense, the first things that you have to do is deal with the uncanny. The uncanny meaning that you have to deal with certain things that are very familiar, uh, but are completely uncomfortable, also inaccessible, but that might reflect a version of who you are. And that's why it becomes the uncanny because it's very uncomfortable. So that is the process, this space or this experience is about the process of unlearning what you already know, because, you know, we're always, we're always in a time in our present where we think that, of course, we are better versions of ourselves because we, we are evolving, we are growing, we learn more through experiences, not just through knowledge in books, but in our lived experiences. So we, we think that we know better than who we were then, but actually unlearning means that you have to reestablish your positions every time. And uh, maybe it's something that you 
were not in the, 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 the same positionality a few years ago and that you are somewhere else, but then at the same time, you are parallel back close to it, but in a different, in a different way. So it's very much about unlearning the given what you have been given already, even things that are very, that you have made a decision that is very close to you. So if you decide, for example, your cultural heritage, that of course will come from our uh, families and parents and uh, communities that you feel comfortable because they identify, that identifies you politically and the structure narrative of your work can quickly uh, change because of course there are also limitations. You know, we think about, even when we think about traditions, well, traditions are also modern inventions that are based also on patriarchal systems. These patriarchal systems are not just male-driven, they're also maintained very much by feminist or white feminisms. So it limits your perceptions all of a sudden, your practice that you have to change, that you have to question, that you have to challenge. And this is a, this moment of uncanniness, of uncomfortability and having a conversation with yourself and saying that, but at, you know, it's part of the process of being human. And so that's why then in my practice, there is also, I try to not have too much of a definition of what my practice can be because it changes according to each narrative of stories that I want to say or that I want to explore. And those narratives are also not um, conclusive. That means they are open-ended. So I usually, if I have to work for a project, it might take several years or you know, a shorter time and I create an environment. It's more about creating an environment that I will interact with the people I want to bring into this environment. And so they find their own stories in it. So it's, that's why it's very much based on like, you know, multimedia work. You have different situations where you have video work, sound work, installations, objects that need to be animated, used, broken, rebuilt. Um, or it can be also very minimal where it's just a, about the breath, about the, the, the sound, about intimacy, which, you know, which is very interesting because in white spaces, intimacy can be seen as something very violent. And also a lot of violence can go to, uh, back towards you as a person of color, unfortunately. Sometimes I learn how to build a language, right? To, to, to navigate these, these kinds of situation of violence. I learned, for example, that in collaborations or working with, you know, unfortunately with like, for example, other people of color, if you are learning still in, in these institutions, in these white institutions, and you're committed to whiteness and to this language, then you will also perpetuate, you know, racial discrimination against your, your kinfolk, you know, um, and, and this is heartbreaking. So all these personal uh, events relationship is, is also in my work somehow, and then, you know, I always invite people to do something. They're not forced to, but they, you know, they write the story. They say how, how to extend this, build the story, found out about the, the narratives of, you know, Black women that were doing the work of decoloniality in a completely different way and that are now, you know, historically erased in the archive or as, as, you know, as interpreted as missing people, but they are not missing people for me. Actually, the, the act of erasure is very much visible and then it creates um, a sense of appearing this is what you know black women historically 
are very well at doing is appearing and disappearing. So it's it's having the it's the yin and yang of um, the light and the darkness together. That it's something that um, one is not separated from the other. And then how to amplify their erasure by um, for your own experiences and bring out their testimonies, bringing out their voices, bringing out their um, visual testimonies, through traces, through ruinations. And for me, ruinations are really important to commemorate those past histories, but also to make things very transparent about the politics that we are living in or that we might be complicit to, even though we hashtag ourselves as, you know, being the forefront of any <laughs> anti-racist uh, group or practice, but we all in certain ways, and this is the uncanny where, you know, it's uncomfortable to say to ourselves, well, actually they, you know, I am in the system. So I'm going to perpetrate something that I need to have an honest um, conversation with myself. And so, yeah. And so this is what I create usually in my work, like for example, in the ruins of paradise, which is like synchronized in different chapters and they adapt to the different spaces where the work is shown. So if in a certain theater or in a certain museum that has the history of violence and erasure, you know, what happened in that space. So then the, the work will change according to the, the erasures of that space and then amplify on those stories. And so either you have, you know, the white audience who can be preserved because they, they think if it's a history that they don't know or they haven't seen, they just assume that it's not true. And so actually, you know, but the, the whole point of is that archives in Europe are a work of mythology because they are based on the work and the ideology and the positions and the reflection and the gaze of usually a white man. So actually most of these visual stories and photographs and archives, they are not true, but they tell the truth about this white person, right? This white man or whoever. So it's about, you know, kind of assessing all these truths and finding the spaces in between to form um, an environment for me in my uh, practice uh, as a space of empowerment. And it's inconclusive. There is no final product or final image per se, because then it's oversimplifying. And again, I, I am very careful about falling back into representation and what does it mean to repeat those archival images again on the wall, let's transform them because we are descendants. So we, we understand these, these messages and these voices and we are still alive. But for me, it's very much about, you know, the intimacies and the conversations that I have when, uh, when being in these artistic environments that are not always so visible to people and then finding the, the, the sequence, the narrative, years and years and years after how it comes back into, into the work. I kind of resigned from the network of, in the sense of marketed artistic practice because I suffered a lot of violence, discrimination, whether it was my work being stolen, being absolutely tokenized and being talked to as if I'm just a, a easily disposed body. And, you know, they want to see how much you're working. They want to prove, are your hands bleeding? Are your hands dirty? To check on the legitimacy of how hard you're working for your clients. And this is not 
my work at all because then I'm just too far away from the process also of healing and rebuilding uh, and unlearning. And I think I find a lot of joy and um, having those complexities of uh, building a work from nothing and just building forms that do not necessarily need to be understood by, um, by the audience, but they can make up their own uh, experiences from them and elastify on these stories that we still need to, to hear. I'm sorry to hear about the exploitative practices in, in the arts. In many ways, those dynamics and that issue has a lot to do with the kind of structural inequalities that exist within the arts as a whole, but how it also, even with the idea or sense that it should be driven by a creative spirit, a free spirit, um, that is very much grounded and sedimented within capitalistic structures that ultimately are about, are about profit. And then, and if anything, something that you kind of alluded to, like at the beginning of the conversation, which is you know, one can do art and be an artist and exist in the world. In fact, most people who make art don't actually sell it or live off of their artwork. They mm -hmm. just produce it in the everyday um, and it becomes part of the world in which they encompass fully and, and unconditionally. And I guess in a way, art in some ways and the, the path of an artist to me is kind of similar to the path of a historian. One that does not necessarily need a professional degree per se to think about what history might mean, to acquire knowledge and information from one's elders, to document in whatever fashion, orally, textually, through song, music, dance, what one's history or what a community history might look like. And it brings me to thinking actively about the work of Sadia Hartman, who in an interview for Creative Dependent asserted, I work a lot with scraps of the archive. I work a lot with unknown persons, nameless figures, ensembles, collectives, multitudes, decorous. That's where my imagination of practice resides. That's where my heart resides. And you come also from such a creative family and your artistic work has engaged in ancestral memory healing. To what extent do you exercise that history, your history or the history of people from your lineage or people like you through a decolonial practice, through the archival practice of maybe troubling those that may not necessarily be explicitly documented? I guess I would like to think maybe um, I've taken the the decision to resign from the practice of anthropologies and certain sciences, also art discourses that have uh, suffocated the possibility for imagination. So, you know, I mean, many years ago when I used to work in London, I was working in a lot of uh, archives uh, in, um, in uh, gallery collections in museums, the British Museum, and often it was very difficult because in these structures, even when you're inside of them, you don't have as, as a staff, the accessibility to this information, right? So this, this happens a lot also in, in France and also in Germany, in Berlin, uh, when you want to have access just to archives and stories, even when you are inside the structure, there is a complete inaccessibility for you to 
uh, read those stories or to see those visuals, or then they tell you that it was not it's insignificant. Because I mean, this was earlier on before we even, you know, speak about decoloniality as it is now, but it was very much that there was no interest in the experiences of, um, you know, black people in British history and French history was seen as, as something put to the side and this was inaccessible. It was also be, before the time of social media. Um, things have changed, uh, of course, significantly now. But the problem is, is how it was tokenized now and kind of hijacked. So, you know, the propositions and the work that a, a lot of people like us were doing already in the 70s, the 80s, the 90s, especially in the British context, um, now is being revisited and, um, you know, has found a new economy with exactly those white institutions that say no, or that say, no, you, you don't have access to that in that way. So now the, you know, the discourse, changed a lot, I think. And I think I appreciate that you said the, this quotation from Sadia Hartman because, and thinking about, you know, the histories of missing peoples, but they are not missing. It's, it's just that their stories have been intentionally erased or overwritten for creating a better reflection or a better posture for white superiority. You know, so it's understanding that language and having to understand ourselves that, you know, we are also mimicking and performing these postures in our language and the way we talk or in the way we make choices, how we move in society. That's, that's inevitable. I, I would like to, to see it as a process of seeing those moments of editing and gaps and erasures that can actually give more transparency and visibility especially for those um, histories to, to be amplified, to be better heard, because we are also at the moment, all of us are also learning a language or we are learning different languages through those archives. You know, you have the language, of course, of the spoken language, you have the written language, you have the ancestral language. So understanding your familiarity to your cultural heritage, whether it's through food, for music, for your intimacies in relation to your own family, but there's also the, the language of archive being, you know, archives is not just a static, it's not a box. It lives, it moves, and it changes in white museum archives is that you can write and edit however you want in order to create and fortify your position. But the problem is in this instance is that those institutions did that in order to oppress other cultures and to uh, decline and disappear make them disappear. So it's in, in that push, in that act of violence, if it's transparent enough, then the appearance, the reappearance of these ghosts then are amplified. Then you start to understand, huh, what has been done? What are they saying? What did they left over? What did they mean by this? And this was very clear to me also with the material of the phonograph recordings, um, um, with notably at the Humboldt um, university with the Willem Durgan collection. And that brought me closer also to my own family history in the way that, because actually, you know, we also hold a myth about our own family knowledge and history, because what, what is given to you by your parents or your grandparents, it's their truth, it's their narrative, which is true. But the same person who has experienced the same event will tell you another truth, a different narrative, completely different, but they are both true. 
And we had made we have made the mistake in our language, in our understanding, to ask ourselves which one is true or false, which one is fact and fiction. But they are all truths. Uh, in fact, and fiction belong together. You cannot get the, the, the truth or the fact of something unless you work through the practice of fiction. And fiction doesn't mean telling a lie. Fiction means to um, give porosity to language, to movement, and political positionality. That's what it means. We have a we have a, we misunderstand the practice and the word when we say fiction. You, you know, when you read fictional stories, you know, it says nonfiction or um, fictional stories that you read, but you understand that they reflect a lot of your own experiences and there's a lot of truth in that. And there's a lot of poetry that pushes you then to reflect, make decisions and so on. So that is really inevitable to, to understand. And then learning this process in an artistic practice it doesn't have to be a visual practice, you know, practice is a practice, however you want to, 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 to use it or to develop it. But it made me understand also this, this notion yeah, of identity and, you know, this idea who is more, uh, you know, who is legitimized more as, you know, uh, when you say, for example, your nationality, you know, I'm Congolese, I'm Cameroonian, I'm Gabonese. It doesn't mean anything because this is modern tradition. You know, this is this is not early before in 1884. We were not Cameroonians, we we're not Congolese. We were based on our positions and our identities were based on, for example, our beliefs. So Bantu, we came from the Bantu philosophy. That's the people who we are. Then during the colonial times, then it was subdivided into language. There was the phone language, were then subdivided. The Bantu populations were then subdivided into Cameroon, uh, Congo, Gabon, Namibia. The Nama people are part of the same Bantu uh, heritage. That's why identity also, you can do whatever you want with it in, in the end, but it's just about your position, about your memory, where you stand, who you want to protect, who you're building, what community are you building, and who are you walking with? This, this is going to be your identity. You know, what, are, what is your struggle? Who are you doing the struggle with? And who is going to fight with you? Um, I think this is for me. This is this is identity, and 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 it moves. Made me less insecure, but more courageous to think about my own family history uh, in Gabon, <laughs> um, because I challenged this also, you know. Um, and I'm thinking of of the work uh, history of lateness, for example, where um, it kind of counteracts. The, the fact of the, the archives of the phonograph recordings where you hear most of the recordings are co black colonial soldiers in, in colonial camps in Germany. Um, but there are also women's voices and we only hear them uh, as subjects, you know, but we never hear the, the voice of the perpetrator behind them, the linguistics who are recording them. So then when you go into, for example, the, the rainforest, in North Gabon, there used to be, uh, you know, German settlements at, at the time in the First World War. You know, the Grey Parrots, for example, they still speak in German, but the last German settlement, settlements was in 1920. But till today, the Grey Parrots in um, this part of the forest in Mimbang, for example, where the war happened in 1914, the, the parrots are speaking German. They're speaking all German through, you know, conversations that... Obviously, they were domesticated into those spaces, and then they repeat in the sound of the war. So this was a counter reaction also to this, 
you know, archival material here and then hearing the sound of the perpetrator giving a different story and a different visual, different narrative. My vision and understanding and to keep position and to keep being empowered by living this porosity. So I want to turn a little bit to theory and the ways that various theorists uh, in the early to mid 20th century were thinking actively about identity and, and try to trouble that a bit. And so if I think about Ami Césaire and his invocation of the negritude movement and what that had to encompass, thinking about a pan-Africanism that mm -hmm. can move across borders through African diasporic experiences that aren't just about the European divine borders on the continent, African continent, but also including the Caribbean into it. And in, and in respect, Creolite, which is specifically a, a dynamic and um, an affirmation uh, very much propounded by Caribbean theorists, mostly men, Jean Benabé, Raphael Courriant, Patrick Camusot, Edouard Glissant, all of them kind of thinking about the doctrine of Caribbeanness by pointing to language, politics, and race. And, and one particular article um, in praise of Creolness written by, co-written by Jean Benabé, Patrick Camusot, and, and also Raphael Confiance as well, they noted that in the beginning, neither Europeans nor Africans nor Asians, we proclaim ourselves Creole. This will be for us an interior attitude, better a vigilance or even better a sort of mental envelope in the middle of which our world will be built in full consciousness of the outer world. For me, there are several layers to this. On the one hand, it actually provides a, an opportunity for solidarity. It provides an opportunity for Afrofuturism or POC futurism to say, you know, down with the world that isn't really designed for us and that ultimately created us into who we are. But it also suggests that the only way that that can be built is through the sense of, of mixture that, so let's just say if a person never left the continent or someone didn't necessarily have European or Asian heritage and they're, they're just black as far as they know, does that necessarily mean they can't also in, invoke the idea or the conceptualization of Creolite? And what would that then look like for us to be invested in creating that future in an inclusive way, but one that doesn't necessarily mean that we have to leave a place in order to create a new future. So in a way, I'm, the question then becomes, what do new modes and new forms of freedom look like that on the one hand, acknowledge certain identities have helped to create who we are, how we respond to the world, our politics, the languages we speak, but then not to fully be defined by those identities or have them be the anchor by which we can't just like imagine something anew. Well, just the fact that you're speaking your own position that's already uh, <laughs> defined someone's your own freedom and that's, that's what you got and that's what's gonna work. 
And I, I mean, I really appreciate you put all those names together and you did your research <laughs> because actually, you know, uh, I mean, uh, it's, it's, I, I started to read them only when I was in my early 20s. No, it's, it's not something that I grew up with or, or in school because it was like I was told in school and maybe it was the same with you that black history is just not, it's just insignificant. And still actually still to this day, you know, a lot of schools on the African continent are only uh, being taught uh, European and American histories. But yeah, responding to what you just said, I mean, you know, we also have to look in the context because we are also reflecting on what has been done in the past before us in the time of colonization and post-colonization, a time of, you know, independence, but not true independence, obviously. And, you know, a lot of these courses, this, this, these discourses, as you know, as you know, I mean, they've been spearheaded, well, spearheaded, again, by Black men. And a lot of these Black men, you know, they had extreme privileges. I mean, they came from aristocracies in Haiti, Jamaica, even in, you know, Nigeria. They're not, you know, they're not like the lower class uh, provincial populations. They were extremely aristocratic. They, you know, they could buy villas in, in Europe, you know, and they were well-respected. In, in the sense that, you know, I guess in, 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 in sometimes in American context, we say that when you become raceless, you know, we saw that in the 90s a bit with, with different celebrities and things, but, um, you know, but I have to say, you know, writers like Mrs. of course, it's absolutely important, uh, the ideas that he's been, you know, uh, writing, but a lot of interviews and a lot of books that he's written were very committed to whiteness, were very committed to white language because they also needed to assert their position to uh, patriarchic academ academics. You know, they wanted to be acknowledged, they wanted to be seen, they wanted to be published. And in order to do that in the time that it was, you had to mimic. The black men always had to somehow mimic whiteness in any way, whether it was to perform it in language, you know, in the way that they spoke, in the way that they dressed, in the way that they interacted with people, you know, but it also, it was a Or even in who they married. Exactly. <laughs> Let's be real. <laughs> I mean, even, even, you know, it's, it's complex. It's even, you know, I know this also from my, you know, even from my father, it's a very complex form of identity that I, I can't reflect myself in this because I live in a different time. But, you know, you know, MSZ also wrote things. I was like, what? Like, you know, one of the things that, you know, I remember for the one of the, the last Biennale uh, that Simon Jamy was curating at the Biennale of Dakar in 2018 was Le Rouge, the Red Hour, which was based on, you know, the, the, the text, the liberation text of Aimé Césaire and, and fortifying, you know, African identities. Uh, but so it was all about celebrating it and having artists to respond, you know, positively around Césaire and the legacy. But nobody even challenged. I said, yeah, but nobody re even read properly Césaire because Césaire was also, uh, you know, he was also very sexist. And one of the writings that he did, which was the biography of Toussaint Louverture, when he talks about Haiti, the, the revolution and the biography of him, what, what he writes about the black women about the so-called partner, the wife of Toussaint, the mother of Toussaint, he calls them betrayers and whores in the story. So I'm like, wait a minute, you know? So actually, you know, that nobody really challenges that. And, you know, I, I, I always say when we see now, you know, our writers 
that you know we we celebrate you know with um even with female writers we, we don't challenge enough also and ask questions but actually also you know also write some things and said some things in interviews that i don't agree that was also perpetrating a lot of uh, white violence so it's good to reflect on those times and the context that it was in, you know, even think of France Fanon, I mean, France Fanon was extremely privileged also. And then he struggled in Nigeria because all of a sudden, you know, yes, he was a perpetrator. He was, you know, he was a black man in Algeria. Nigeria was in right in the middle of colonial cacophony with the French. And, you know, and then nobody talks about the, you know, the, the racisms within the continent, you know, they don't talk about the racisms between Algerians against uh, um, black Saharan populations. And, you know, all of the, all these complexes, they're not debunked, you know, and, um, and so he wrote this very much in, in, in his memoirs and his work about those complexities, about the struggles and the movement about organizing, but he, he knew he could only write it at a level that was I, um, ideological and at the level that was scientific because at the end of the day he was in a position of power medically and just assessing and reporting on what he was seeing and then he wanted to reflect himself as a black man in, the situ in their situation but he could never be because he's not in their situation but he understood that he also had the white mask in, in that sense so I think that th there's a lot of texts that were written that I would like for us to really reinvent and, uh, you know, like build new conversations with those, those stories and with those ghosts, you know, not to attack them, but just say, hey, you know, what did you say about my great great grandmother? What did you say about, you know, the women's movement as, you know, like, Miss Cesar wrote this, he said that the when the women organized themselves, they, they betrayed the movement of liberation and they, they crushed it. So that is a real form of, of sexism there, you know, and, and it's perpetrated in every single way, and especially in the diaspora, even in Germany, you, you, you read the testimonies of black women, you know, between the 1920s and 1940s, they say exactly the same thing. The black men sometimes do perpetrate violence against them or exclude them from the, the movement or the rev or, or, or black revolution. So this, then of course, movements come in and out, you know, they, they feel like this, but I think, um, you know, freedom means that you can uh, reinvent those narratives and build your own and that you're gonna edit your own narrative. It's never gonna be the same. You're gonna rewrite your own story over and over again. And when you do that, that, that is poetry. That is a form of poetry. You're not writing a, a novel from you know, ABC or a manual guideline, you are writing poetry. So therefore it will reflect on the times uh, that you're in. It will reflect on your skin, your evolution your interactions, your relationships to, to people. And this is archiving. Uh, so I, I mean, you know, I don't, I don't have anything extraordinary to say from, from what you, you just told me because you already, you know, you already taken this position. And one thing I would repeat maybe from what I said earlier is to know how to resign. And resignation is not a form of quitting. It's really a form of, building up your position so you understand, am I being complicit to the system that I'm moving into? And if you realize this, when you step out and you say no, and you resign to, to be in a different space, maybe a safer space in the time that you are now, 
that is a form of freedom, that is a total form of liberation. And this is what um, Sarah Ahmed, for example, you know, she wrote about, she, she quit her uh, professorship at Gosnes University because of the uh, sexual abuse, uh, bullying that was happening in academia with you know, very renowned professors and how it was affecting her students. And she fought by staying uh, that she could protect them, right? So you think that, no, I'm gonna, I'm gonna fight this. You know, I've got this position, I'm gonna change it. And it didn't happen like that because you're still inside a structure and you're complicit to it and you're mimicking and you're performing it just to stay in that position. And so after a decade, actually the freedom was the resignation. The resignation gave her power, it gave her power and it gave her power to, to heal also, you know, and think about your well-being and mental health. Thank you so much for that. And obviously there have been so many intellectual, political, as well as care work contributions um, by femmes, by Black feminists, by uh, theorists who've been also documenting our history. I think about Zora Neale Hurston, who's, who was so pivotal in documenting ethnographic practices of voodoo and IT in Southern uh, US, as well as writing novels um, to, you know, Toni Morrison's work, Tony Kate Bambara's work, uh, Salt Eaters is excellent. And just like Black international feminists, um, so Cheryl Kagashida's work on Black women writers of feminist movements uh, globally, all can attest to what's been happening and what people have been doing, uh, as well as the the, the interventionist work by the Kambahi River Collective and Third World Women's Alliance. And, you know, those groups, collectives, individuals don't get the same kind of citational practices and recognition as Black male writers or theorists, but they do deserve to be part of the ongoing history of, of Black liberation. So I want to end with one final question, and it is, what is bringing you joy? Many things, many things, but I think resting brings me joy to, to learn how to rest as a form of to fight. I need, I need to rest. And it gives me joy when I can rest and I am not alone in doing this act of resting um, because I have to, it's more of a form of reflecting and of seeing your, yourself in, a, in different perspectives like coming out of yourself, coming inside yourself, like breathing. Um, uh, because I think, I think for me, I, I, breathing is a really important uh, practice. Like, although I am speaking and yes, I'm breathing, but not, there's a way to breathe and that goes through your whole body. And when you learn how to do that, when I learn, when I'm learning how to breathe, you know, I'm crying, I'm sweating, I'm hallucinating because it's the moment where I can really come back to myself and also in a way um, be closer to my ancestral frequencies. And I'm joyful when, I, when poetry moves me, I'm really joyful when I'm connecting with people, when I'm eating with people it's, and being with my children and my family. Um, it's very simple things, but it's how you process and react and respond to them to, uh, to nurture your, your vibration, your, your, your frequency. So I, I, I simplified over the years. As I get older, I'm less, uh, my vision of, I guess, joy is very simple. It's like everybody else. It's universal. It's absolutely universal. It belongs to, to everybody. 
Um, but for sure, it's good when you are not, not alone. I like to have solitude, but I, <laughs> I don't like isolation. And just to have the time to, to read all of these wonderful women who've done this work, you know, that I, I didn't know about uh, 20 years ago, which uh, it's, it's a privilege also to actually have the accessibility to learn from them and to say, oh my God, this is like, this is like my story. This is my, my experience. And I want to talk about it. You know, I want to amplify it. I want to share with my girlfriends. Uh, I want to share with my kids those stories so that, because it gives you anchor, you know, something so amazing when you read something from somebody that you don't know, but it's like you live next door, you know, and it gives you anchor. They give you an anchor, like a, a restful place to breathe and to find joy, you know, so this anchoring. So it's, that's my practice of joy. Thank you so much for taking time uh, to express yourself, to share your inspiration, motivations, and theoretical contributions. Thank you so much, Edna. I enjoyed the conversation. <laughs> My name is Edna Bonham, and you just listened to an episode of the Decolonization Action Podcast. This episode featured digitally-based voices who live in Berlin, Germany. As always, there's a list of references and a bibliography in the show notes. To learn more about the podcast or to find out more information about the people and events referenced, please visit www.decolonizationaction.com. If you like what you hear, please rate, comment, and share our episodes on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Spotify. Thank you for listening.